Good morning and welcome to the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. We are a spiritual community dedicated to the free search for truth and meaning, and we're very glad you're here. I would like to extend a special welcome to those of you visiting with us for the first time. We come from a long heritage of teaching that there is a spark of the divine in every person, and it is in the spirit of that heritage that I ask you to greet the holy in our midst by turning to the person to your right and left and welcoming them here this morning. Will you say with me the words by which we light our chalice? In the light of truth and the warmth of love, we gather to seek, to find, and to share. The words of Thich Nhat Hanh. Let us be at peace with our bodies and our minds. Let us return to ourselves and become holy ourselves. Let us be aware of the source of being common to us all and common to all living things. Evoking the presence of the great compassion, let us fill our hearts with our own compassion towards ourselves and towards all living beings. Let us pray that we ourselves cease to be the cause of suffering to each other. With humility, with awareness of the existence of life and of the sufferings of that are going that end of the sufferings that are going on around us, let us practice the establishment of peace in our hearts and on earth. Amen. People do wonder, how do you worship together when you are not in complete agreement about who or what you're worshiping, when people have their roots in Christianity or their roots in Judaism or Buddhism or the earth-based traditions or in agnostic humanism, how do you have a church like that. And I answer, well, we have lots of things that hold us together. One of them is our mission, which we say together every Sunday. We gather in community to nourish souls, transform lives, and do justice. The words of Daphne Kingman. It is love that fashions us into the fullness of our being. Not our looks, not our work, Not our wants, not our achievements, not our parents, not our status, not our dreams. These are all the fodder and the filler, the navigating fuels of our lives. But it is love, who we love, how we love, why we love and that we love, which ultimately shapes us. It is love before all and after all, in the beginning and in the end that creates us. Today, remembering this, let yourself acknowledge and remember the moments, events, and people who bring you, even momentarily, into a true experience of love and allow the rest, the inescapable mundanities of life, like a cloud, to very quietly drift away. Let us quietly continue our meditation with a Buddhist loving-kindness prayer or metta-meditation. We say this three times. The first time for ourselves, the second time for someone we love, and the third time as a spiritual stretch for someone against whom we have a resentment. When you're doing this as a spiritual practice, it is recommended that you do it for six months, just saying it for yourself. 
then another six months saying it for someone you love. The third six months, you say it for someone about whom you are neutral. And it is only after all of that time that you try to take on saying it for someone against whom you have a resentment. We are just trying it out here. I'll say the line and you say it after me should you choose to. May I be free from danger. May I be mentally happy. May I be physically happy. May I have ease of well-being. And now we say it for someone we love. May you be free from danger. May you be mentally happy. May you be physically happy. May you have ease of well-being. And now for someone against whom we have a resentment. May you be free from danger. May you be mentally happy. May you be physically happy. May you have ease of well-being. We continue in the Buddhist tradition today with the sermon. I've been doing a series on the Buddhist Eightfold Path. Where does the path lead? It leads to the end of suffering. That's where we're going with the Eightfold Path. People sometimes say, pain is inevitable, but suffering is optional. The pain comes from what happens to you. Things happen in life. No one escapes unscathed. But then you have your thoughts about what happens to you. And then you have your stories that you tell about the thoughts you have about what happened to you. And suffering is contained in those thoughts and stories. For example... Um, I'm obsessed with rock climbing right now, not doing it, but watching other people do it. (laughs) You probably could have figured that out, but I thought I would tell you. And I was watching a documentary about two German brothers who are speed climbers, and they were climbing up the nose of El Capitan in Yosemite. Their first time when they were kind of doing it casually, it normally takes people three days. They did it nine hours. So they're trying to break the world record of two and a half hours. So basically, you just run up the sheer face of this cliff. Um, One of them, oddly enough, fell. And um, not terribly badly, but enough to wrench his neck when the rope stopped him. And he, um, it didn't break, but he was in pain. And he was just cussing up a storm. And he was saying to himself, you could hear it on the camera, he was saying, I must have done something wrong. I'm I must be being punished for something I have done. Okay, so the fall is what happened, and the I must be being punished for something I have done is the story about what happened. And that story can cause more suffering than just having a sore neck for a couple of days. So this is what I'm talking about. And the, um, the system of Buddhist training your mind and heart 
is in order to have um, spiritual stability and mental, emotional stability uh, as much as possible and clear your experience of the dread of telling stories about something that's going to happen or the shame of telling stories about something that happened and just let it be something that happened. And the goal of all of this is to reduce suffering, your own. And those around you, because they have to listen to you while you're telling yourself the story. This, um, the first two elements of the Eightfold Path have to do with wisdom, um, right understanding, right intention. We've already talked about that. The, sec- the, the um, next three have to do with behavior, right speech, right action, and right livelihood. And we talked about uh, right speech. Remember back when I didn't have any voice, so I just kind of croaked that one ironically into the, um, into the microphone. But um, today we're going to look at right action, doing the right thing. So why do you do the right thing? In Buddhism and in Unitarian Universalism, you do the right thing in order to have a better life. Now, in some religious systems, you do the right thing to please, in order to please God or in order to avoid hell. And so um, while Unitarian Universalists can understand the language about pleasing God and how it makes sense to many of us to want to please, uh, to, to live in harmony with or to be uh, aligned with the spirit of life and love, um, the avoiding hell is not something that we have to worry about in our faith system because both Unitarians and Universalists believe that God does not send anybody to hell. I love the stories of the old Universalist preachers, and there's one whom I love I love saying his name, Hosea Ballou. He's got a great name. And he used to be a circuit-riding Universalist preacher in New England. And so he was, there are a couple of stories I'm going to tell you about his life. He, so he was circuit-riding in the mountains of New Hampshire, gorgeous um, place to be a circuit rider. And he was companioned one day by a, the Baptist minister who was also circuit riding. So they're plodding next to each other on the path in their horses. And at one point, according to this story, the Baptist looks over and says, brother Ballou, if I were a universalist and feared not the fires of hell, I could hit you over the head, steal your horse and saddle, ride away and still go to heaven. Hosea Ballou looked over at him and said, Sir, if you were a universalist, that thought would never have occurred to you. <laughs> the second story occurs when uh, Hosea Ballou stops for the night at a farmhouse in New England, and the farmer is troubled deeply about his son, who is apparently um, acting like a terror. Uh, drinking too much, running around with women and um, not behaving in the way that he would like his son to behave. And furthermore, he's tormented by the idea that God is going to send his son to hell. And he asks Hosea Ballou for help. So Hosea Ballou says, I will help you. Let's lie in wait for your son along the path that he takes from the tavern back to his house And let's build a big fire there. And when he comes by, we'll grab him and throw him into it. (laughs) The farmer is shocked. And he says, sir, uh, that will not do. I love my son. I would never do that to him. And Baloo says, sir, 
if you, as a human and imperfect father, love your son so much that you wouldn't throw him into the fire, then how can you possibly believe that God, the perfect father, would do so? Yeah, pretty simple when you think about it that way. So if you aren't scared of hell, then why do the right thing in order to have a better life? There's a Buddhist teacher named Eric Kolvig who says, basically, we do our spiritual practice, all of it, the meditation and the ethical behavior, um, to achieve two things, to achieve a clear mind and an open heart. Clear mind and an open heart. I think that's a great description of why we're here, what we what we are trying for. We're trying to have a clear mind and an open heart. And I want to say, you know, I have achieved that sometimes, but... Mostly it's when I'm temporarily well, and it's when I'm temporarily um, flush in my bank account, and my yard is temporarily mowed, my car is topped off with gas, my family is all healthy, and um, I haven't done anything that makes me cringe in the last week or so. So listen, it's pretty easy to have a clear mind and an open heart under those circumstances. But the way, the reason we do a spiritual practice, and practice means every day or every other day or when you can make yourself do it, practice, it's so that whether you are comfortable or broke, temporarily healthy or temporarily sick, proud of your children or worried to death, whether your life partner is clean and sober or whether they're using whether people are accepting you for who you are or not, no matter what your circumstance that you can have within that circumstance, a clear mind and an open heart. That's our ultimate goal. Who knows if anybody gets there? That's that's what we are trying for is spiritual groundedness. I personally, as a very bad Buddhist, would add... um, to have appropriate, enormous emotions when it is time to have those. Because, as you all know, I'm not a fan of peace of mind all the time. The Buddha gives five precepts with which to experiment. Again, I say it this way. I don't say there are five precepts one must follow. No. You experiment with these because when you're in this paradigm of thinking you're not a bad person if you don't do it and a good person if you do you're not bad you're not good you're just either causing yourself harm and suffering causing others harm and suffering or causing joy and peace and lessening suffering adding to the joy lessening the suffering because if you're not doing if you're causing harm it's because you're ignorant a very gentle and kind-hearted system. Again, I prefer Thor. So we'll go, if you're not doing right, but I don't get to have that in my actual spiritual practice. So here are the five precepts. One, this is the non-harming one. Aware of the suffering caused by violence, I undertake the training to refrain from killing or committing violence toward living beings. I will attempt to treat all beings with compassion and loving kindness. 
So that's the goal of number one. Some people just begin with a basic, I'm not going to beat up my spouse or my children. You would think you wouldn't have to say that in a church, but you do. Because churches are not immune to family violence. So we don't beat our spouses and partners. We don't um, beat our children. We refrain from violence. The second step is to refrain from violent thoughts about people who have done us wrong. Some people take the step of refraining from killing animals and being their Vegetarians. The Buddhist is a vegetarian faith because you don't want to kill an animal in order to eat it. And so there are some people who take their spiritual path in that direction. Um, some people even avoid killing uh, spiders and bugs. Someone was interviewing the Dalai Lama and said to him, well, what do you do if a mosquito lands on your arm? And he made the gesture of gently brushing it, brushing it away. What would you do if it came back? What would you do if it came back the third time? (laughs) And he laughed. (laughs) That made me feel better. I confess to a passion for killing fire ants. In South Carolina, they make little red mounds like this. They're above the, above the ground. Here, I haven't seen those. I think they make flatter uh, mounds here, but maybe I just haven't been looking because I love those things. I love to go poke them and watch them spill out, and then I, anyway. <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's a matter of battle of wills, and uh, I know I'm losing, but I don't care. So non-harming takes many forms. Um, One Buddhist teacher was asked, would he kill a mouse if it came into his house? And he said, well, first I ask the mouse kindly if it will leave. And um, yet I've never met a mouse who listened to me. So first we try, uh, I think, removing violence from our, our behavior, our thoughts, and our speech. That's a lifetime of work. Second one that you experiment with is about stealing. You say, aware of the suffering caused by theft, I undertake the training to refrain from stealing, from taking what is not given. I will attempt to practice generosity and will be mindful about how I use the world's resources. So this is a teaching that says we're happier and freer when we don't take things that don't belong to us. So just at the very minimum, we don't steal people's Money, we don't steal people's things. We don't steal people's ideas. Um, It has very many repercussions in all the interactions with other people in that you also begin to realize that sometimes you steal people's time by talking to them longer than they want you to talk to them. Or you steal people's space by coming in closer to them than than they are comfortable with. You can steal any number of things from people, but if you keep in mind, I will not take what is not given. Love, for example, um, along with many other things, if it's given, then you can receive it. But taking it, no, not okay. All right, so um, 
The second part of this is I will practice generosity. And I think that's in here because sometimes it is like stealing to have too much stuff. It makes you spiritually sick to be, to hold on to more than you need. So when you let go of what is more than you need, you feel freer. And even so, when you look at your closet, and there are lots and lots of clothes in there that you never wear, perhaps you could think about it as those clothes belong to someone else, even though I bought them. I don't use them. I don't need them. Um, They're way too big for me. And (laughs) so I'm going to give them away. So you give them away so that they can find their true owners. Does that make sense? All right. So we think about, do I have more than I need? What do I need? What would I like to experiment with giving away? And I want to be mindful of how I use the world's resources and not use more water, electricity, et cetera, than I need. All right. Now is when you say to the preacher, you've stopped preaching and gone to meddling. As this one is about sexual misconduct. Aware of the suffering caused by sexual misconduct, I undertake the training to refrain from using sex in ways that are harmful to myself or to others. I will attempt to express my sexuality in ways that bring joy and feelings of connection. This training teaches that sex is best enjoyed in, feel, in uh, circumstances of loving connection. So, same gender, opposite gender, doesn't matter. It's just, is there loving? I mean, it matters to the old school Buddhists, but they're evolving in this as most people are. Um, it, if you have a loving connection with someone, then you enjoy sexual relations with that person. But, um, so, number one, you're not going to have uh, anonymous hookups. Number two, you're not going to have sex with children. Ever. Never not with someone who can't consent, not with someone who's passed out on your couch. No. Only with a joyous, loving connection. Okay. No cheating on your committed partner. No withholding sex to get your way. Now, I know. I was a couples counselor for 15 years, and I was amazed at how many couples came in where one person had decided that they didn't want to have sex anymore, but they also didn't want the other person to have sex with anybody else. No fair. That's no fair. So even the old rabbis, who were more comfortable meddling apparently than uh, Protestant ministers of a certain type, um, the old rabbis in the ancient commentaries have frequency recommendations for this. They say once a week is good. You can do more if you want to, but at least once a week. If not once a week, then you have broken your covenant, your marriage covenant. If you're a traveling salesperson and you're off on the camel caravan for months at a time, you have to come back every six months in order to enjoy each other. If you're in the merchant marine and you're sailing on the ocean sea, then you come back once a year. So they actually had this, otherwise you have made your marriage contract null and void. Interesting. 
Be generous with sharing sex with your partner. And um, also don't use it to get what you want. And that's a corollary of withholding it to get what you want. All right, with great relief, I move on to the next one. (laughs) Number four, and we talked about this at length when I talked about speech. Aware of the suffering caused by harmful speech, I undertake the training to refrain from lying, from harsh speech, from slander, and from idle speech. I will attempt to speak and write in ways that are both truthful and appropriate. And it's not in the ancient texts, but we would add, including in email. On to the fifth one. Again, I apologize in advance for meddling. Aware of the suffering caused by alcohol and drugs, I undertake the training to refrain from misusing intoxicants that dull and confuse the mind. I will attempt to cultivate a clear mind and an open heart. So now you just have this talk with your conscience about what uh, the right use of intoxicants is and what is misusing intoxicants, and that is up to you. If you have some beers with your friends or wine with dinner, no big deal. But if you are an addict, if the alcohol or drugs are impacting your life negatively and your, your relationships negatively, if you do, you know, here I'm going to quote a seventh grade film, if you make bad choices when you're under the influence, then perhaps it would be better not to go to important events, uh, parties, um, driving, etc. when you're under the influence. Most crimes are committed while under the influence of alcohol and drugs. If the criminals would just stay sober, then we would have people who could do evil, stone-cold sober, but there would be fewer of them. So how do you know what the right thing to do is? You listen to your inner wisdom. You listen to the wisdom of others. You see what feels right to you. And I have to tell you that it is not always easy to know what the right thing to do is. And it is not always easy to know whether you have made the right or wrong decision, even at the very end of your life. It's not always easy to know whether you have made the right or wrong choices. You just do your best. You ask yourself, what am I doing? Why am I doing it? You try to cultivate a zone of safety around you where people are not going to get whacked verbally or physically in your presence. And if you have that zone of safety that you aspire to being, then at some point you will be able even to bring it into proximity to other people who are agitated and they will calm down a little because you have the zone of calm around you. Does that make sense? So what I would ask you to do just is pay attention to your behavior. Pay attention to it. Does it reduce suffering? Does it add to the joy? If so, have at it. May you have a clear mind and an open heart. May it be so. Please say with me the words by which we extinguish our chalice. We extinguish this flame, but not the light of truth, the warmth of community, or the fire of commitment. These we hold in our hearts until we are together again. And so as you go forth from this place, 
thinking about the right thing to do. May you be guided by your inner wisdom. May you be guided by those you trust and love. May you be at peace with sometimes not knowing and just doing the best you have with the information you have at the time. And don't worry, nobody's going to hell. This is a presentation of the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. For more information, visit our website at www.austinuu.org.